This is the Ebon Hawk Podcast. Spoiler alert for the Knights of the Old Republic series and the Star Wars films and TV shows. Welcome to The Evan Hawk, a podcast discussing Star Wars news and nights of the Old Republic. Today we are joined again by the great Ironic Dot Designs, and we will take a closer look at the cast of KOTOR. This is where the dramatist personae begins. All right, it's great to have you back, Nick. Thanks for coming on again. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, I'm glad to be back. <laughs> um, so just some quick uh, warm-up questions. Uh, what is your favorite bit of symbolic storytelling in Star Wars. I was trying to think of something specific, but I think for me, it's pretty much just that everything in Star Wars can be up to interpretation. So you can relate things to just anything from our real world history, mythology. Uh, you can relate things from just your personal life, you know, and you can look at like one scene and each person can find different meaning in that. So that's what I appreciate the most about Star Wars. Yeah, for me... I think I've really been noticing more of the symbolic underpinnings in the Star Wars prequels lately, and I have a lot of fun doing Inspired a Galaxy posts on them. Uh, and I've been reading the Star Wars heresies, interpreting the themes, symbols, and philosophies of episodes 1, 2, and 3. And that is by Paul F. MacDonald. And what I like is this quote from it and it says the setting speaks symbolic volumes and you can kind of see like Naboo is a very peaceful planet it's idealized you know people are at peace there and then Mustafar is like George Lucas's version of hell so there's always like some interesting storytelling that's being done and the writer sometimes doesn't even have to make it overt if you could redesign any Star Wars movie poster, which one would it be, and what would it look like? So I've thought about this. <laughs> um, probably wouldn't come too much of a surprise for people who follow my page. Um, I don't really do a lot of sequel stuff. There's some good elements in sequels that I like and I appreciate, uh, but I would probably do the sequel trilogy posters over again. Um, one idea I've actually had was redoing them, but kind of keeping the main actors but kind of tweaking their costumes and their characters a little bit. So I was thinking about doing like more like a legend spinoff. So kind of like Daisy Ridley would be Jaina Solo. Uh, Adam Driver would be Jason Solo. And, you know, trying to find a place for the other actors as well. Yeah. yeah. For me, I would redesign the Revenge of the Sith poster. Not because I think it's bad, but just because I like it. And I, I'm not sure if Richard Amsel designed... The prequel posters, uh, I think... Are you talking about the illustrated ones? Uh, yeah, so... Uh, that was Drew Struzan. Okay. I just kind of like the style, the Richard Amsel, uh, Indiana Jones posters. I would kind of maybe do Revenge of the Sith, yeah. kind of looking like that. Like, it would be cool to see what uh, Anakin, Obi-Wan, Padme would look like, just in a different design. And I think it'd be yeah. pretty cool. 
Yeah, I definitely like like the retro like illustrated versions. The one thing I like about the sequel ones is like the placement of the actors and characters because that's very modern and I like that. Like it just feels a little bit blander. Like it doesn't have that much standout of itself, and it kind of does look like um, a lot of different type of modern movies, like um, kind of like Endgame or Aladdin. Which is funny because like it has the same exact color scheme as the Force Awakens poster. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a blue orange mix with like fire in the middle. Yeah, there's a lot of movie um, posters that mix blue and orange into it. I guess they're like calming, yeah. eye catching colors. Yeah, like there's a nice contrast, and I get that, but it's like it's weird because it's all coming from the same company. Disney owns Aladdin. They own Marvel. They own Star Wars, and it's like, do you just have one art department that's doing all this? But even then, it's like, maybe they just have one guy who's doing it. I don't know. Maybe they do. They might, to save money. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, oh, this worked for The Force Awakens. I'll just do it for everything else that's coming out. So what would your uh, dream KOTOR movie or series poster look like if you could be the person in charge? If I was in charge of this, well, first off, I would prefer a series over a movie. But movie posters are a little bit more compelling i would try to fit in the entire cast if i could you know at least like the main crew of the ebon hawk and maybe malik somewhere um style wise i like the modern take of like where the placement of the characters are but i would kind of go for more of that retro illustrated look because you know it's the older public so it's got to look a little bit more you know ancient dated so maybe make it even like weathered a bit kind of like the indiana jones ones yeah That's pretty much what I would do. I think I do like that illustrated look. Maybe kind of have a little bit more modernized uh, setup. But I also kind of liked the Star Trek posters for the reboot where they were in black and white, but then the characters would be kind of like in Spock would be blue, Kirk would be in yellow, Uhura would be in red. Like, maybe you could, like, play up the different colors of lightsabers or something. Interpreting a new way to say that this is Star Wars, but it's ancient Star Wars is an interesting design challenge, but also adventure, I think. So I could have a lot of fun. What that kind of reminds me of... um... The Force Awakens, they had like kind of individual spinoff posters. So like each character had their own solo poster. Yeah. Um, if you remember, it's like a character and they're kind of holding like, you know, their signature weapon in front of them and then a background behind them. So maybe something like what you were saying, kind of like the main character is kind of mimicking that, but it's black and white or, you know, yeah. saturated or whatever to be older looking. And then like the lightsaber weapon is like lit up. That would be pretty cool, and I'm very surprised that hasn't happened before, honestly. Yeah, you think that would, like, (laughs) black and white and then whatever the lightsaber color is. Yeah. I guess it reminds me of uh, Vic Bazine's art on Instagram. I'll have to tag him. Uh, We can just take a quick break, and then we will talk about terrorists. And I'm so excited. Terrace again. <laughs> so 
I think this is it. I was I was conveying yeah. that I'm not excited about Taurus, but yeah. <laughs> I've heard some people call it Taurus. Taurus. But I think in the game they say Taurus. Okay, I'll say it again. They say Taurus. All right. We will talk about Taurus because that's how the locals say it. Mm. So we asked our listeners on Instagram, when should Revan and Co. leave Terrace? And 68% said end of Act 1, 13% said end of Act 2, and then 16% said end of Act 3, and then 3% said other. Uh, Nick, when do you think they should leave Terrace? I would say the end of Act 1. I've played the game so many times, so like I try to rush to get off Terrace just so I can get to Dantooine. But like it's tough because like it depends like are they gonna do it for a movie or a TV show? Because a movie they have to cut a lot of stuff out. Yeah. And I feel like there is a lot of stuff you can cut out in Terrace because Terrace is basically uh you learn what the state of the galaxy is. You recruit half the crew pretty much for the Ebon Hawk. Uh you have to rescue Bascula. And then you have to find the Ebon Hawk and leave before, you know, it's destroyed. Um, so, like, those are the main things you've got to touch on. So, like, the Rackle uh, Plague, some side mission stuff, or even the swoop race, like, with the gang war. You could probably skip all that. Yeah. I wouldn't want to, but, like, for a movie, they're going to have to cut some stuff. Like, my gut feeling is I want to leave Act 1. I think that could be done. At the very latest, Act 2... But I think you don't want to spend the majority of the movie on Terrace, or otherwise it just gets to feel a little slow. And throughout our episodes talking about Terrace, Coden and I discussed how to kind of strip it to the essentials and not just be like, let's do every side quest on Terrace ever, you know? (laughs) Um, Just so it's a fun movie to watch. Um, Some people even suggested, like, what if they get off of Terrace? Like, you don't know if they're going to get off, and then that's the end of the movie. And I'm like, ah, probably not. That's that's a pretty small world Star Wars movie. Yeah, definitely. That's what I would say. And we also asked our listeners, what are you okay with skipping on Terrace in an adaptation? And some of the responses were from Ibra Kadabra. No frowny face (laughs) Uh, i'm assuming they don't want to cut anything yeah i think you have to like i think i've said this before but there's a difference between plot and like having different side quests that don't really affect the plot in there i think you definitely want to have the world building in there kind of get a flavor for all of the three different levels of terrace and get to know the cast of characters in the world within Terrace and like within the Knights of the Old Republic era but I don't need to necessarily have the rat ghouls you know but like if it was going to be a series I like so much the Mandalorian so maybe like eight episodes max like maybe just under an hour each uh maybe Taurus could literally be half of the first season and then uh mid-season you get to Dantooine and then the finale of season one is they discover the star maps and then it's that cliffhanger of like they go off to you know explore pretty much but you don't know where yeah and then they can pick up wherever but for a movie it's like there's way too much because movies have to be at most maybe like two and a half hours yeah and anything longer than that is way too long peter jackson 
but... I know, I was just thinking Peter Jackson. <laughs> yeah. And then Astrodroid says we can do without the hidden backs and the swoop race, but I'm kind of partial to that swoop race, honestly. What about you guys? I mean, like, I, to be honest, like, I don't want to cut anything. And kind of speaking to that, Star Wars Legends Facts said everything besides the main search for Bastila, like the whole Rackle cure thing, etc. And like, I have to agree with that. For a sake of time, yeah. But from a creative standpoint, I would like to see what live action Rackles would look like. It, it would but, be interesting. I mean, they can always go back to Terrace at any point of the saga. So like even the Mandalorian season three, he can go there and probably encounter, you know, Rackles. I mean, I definitely would want to see Rackles in the background. Maybe we don't have to go into what they are, but just to kind of have that design, you know? Right. Like, we would know because yeah. we're mega nerds, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the common audience who are just watching it for, like, the first time, they're like, oh, like, what are those creepy monster-looking things? But we know what they are. Yep. And then Axel Vernos follows up with this comment and they say Terrace is the key to make people aware of how evil Malik can be. It's the only time we see him as the bad guy. What makes KOTOR special is that it takes its time and makes you live the atmosphere of a place. A trilogy could work. The Spire Terrace Dantooine would make a hundred percent sense for the first movie. I mean I agree with that. Like I love that KOTOR makes you basically live in the Star Wars universe, like it's not just you're completing a quest and you're moving, you know, just like that. But like, again, you have to be aware of the time frame. So, although maybe you could fit all of, you know, Terrace into two hours for a film. Yeah. Um, I don't think that would be as appealing to the main audience because they want to see planet hopping, they want to see space, they want to see more Jedi, more characters, and then if you're just stuck in literally you know, one city, that kind of takes away from, like, you know, the epic fantasy that Star Wars is. I do like the point that the orbital bombardment of Terrace is the way you... It's kind of like when Malak is the most evil he can be. And that's one thing I would really want in an adaptation is to take Malak more seriously because it just... He just kind of seems like a... Darth Vader stand-in, and I, I don't really like that. <laughs> I just want to comment real quick. So, side note, my favorite villain from the sequel trilogy has, like, 20 seconds of screen time. He's in The Last Jedi. I think his name is Captain Hannity. Oh, yeah? He's the captain of the Dreadnought who's just, like, barking out orders. Like, he sounds like he went to the school of Tarkin. But he's killed off pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, Tarkin is definitely my favorite uh, of the Imperial command i just his cheekbones it's like their perfection basically but <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh one question after rescuing bastila how would you get off terrace in an adaptation uh what do you think nick so this is going back to like cutting some stuff out um so i know like obviously bastila is the prize of the swoop race and even before that like that's how you meet missions alabar uh you know with the hidden backs and the gang war uh, and then in the middle, you'll meet Candorus, who's, you know, the link to Davik, and they're all connected pretty much. But for saving time for a film, I was thinking maybe just have Basla is captured by Davik, and he's just the head of whatever the crime syndicate is on Terrace. Uh, so you'll meet Mission, Big Z, and Candorus, however. But then, like, 
no plague, no swoop race. You guys have to just like storm Davik's estate, find Bastila, rescue her, and then Malak does his bombardment, and then you guys have to, you know, hijack the Ebon Hawk before the city's destroyed. And it would probably be Candorus that would, you know, inform you of the Ebon Hawk in the first place. I would say maybe have Revan and Co. kind of cross paths with Candorus, and maybe Candorus wants to team up. I do like the idea you had of like kind of like just having Davik be in charge of like yeah. the underground, you know, like just simplify it, just have Davik versus the hidden vex. That's a whole lot more simple and preferable, right. you know. And you could maybe even just have like Brezhik mentioned as like someone in the chain of command, you know. But yeah, like maybe have Candor's double cross. I do want I would say keep the swoop race. I think it's just fun, George Lucasy, you know. Yeah, and then it's definitely like the pod race moment. Yeah. And I think like they break her out or she kind of breaks out like of one of those like containment force containers that Darth Maul was in in the Siege of Mandalore, because I think it would belong to that era and I take it more seriously than like what they used yeah, in the game. A birdcage. Yeah. <laughs> she was in a birdcage. <laughs> yeah. So I would do that. And then maybe just like after that, maybe they have to just rush and like get to the Ebon Hawk. Because Kandra said like we have to either have them sneak in or like they have to do a gang war or something. But I would just not even bother with the Sith governor getting the Sith codes. You just want to like. Pretty much when you have mm -hmm. Bastila, you want to be like, by Terrace, you know? We don't need you anymore. Right. So, but, I mean, I, I guess you also have to feel sad it's destroyed. In that moment, you can, the people who really connect with Terrace the most would be Mission and Zalabar. Yeah. So maybe as they're leaving, you can kind of shift the focus on them watching out of the viewport, like, their home is being destroyed. Yeah. Because, like, the rest of the characters, like you said, Bastila was the only concern. They don't it's sad that these people are being destroyed, but they don't really care about Karis. Their mission is Bastila. Yeah. But mission is Alabar. You know, they just got caught up in this. They're, like, literally, they're helping strangers. Now they're leaving their home, and now they're watching their home be blown up. Major survivor's guilt. I think it, yeah. <laughs> it would affect them because uh, most of the crew of the Ebon Hawk, I would say, is on Team Good, you know, but... Um, yeah, probably Candorus wouldn't care at all. Candorus wouldn't care. I think Bastila might feel guilt because she knows, like, probably, like, Darth Malak is just destroying a planet just yeah. because he doesn't want her to get off. So I think it yeah. would affect them, but definitely you're going to see uh, Mission and Zalbar react to it the most. But I think for those characters, they're kind of just thankful, like, they're out of there. I guess before we move on to our next topic, I just wanted to say that no matter what, we'll always have terrorists. So now we're kind of discussing the cast of KOTOR. Um, let's talk about the main trio. What do you think of Revan? Uh, he's definitely going to be the most trickiest character to portray in live action. Because like, in the video game, you can make him however you want, pretty much. Uh, how he looks, his name, and then also like his actions. But like, I don't know 
what direction to take him for like a solid film like there's no uh wiggle room like he is what he is so i'm not quite sure how to peg revan the way i see revan is i see him as being the main or lead character if i were to say like what kind of hero i would probably see him being it's a bit of a mixture of three types like the epic hero the romantic hero in the old sense not like it's a rom-com you know but uh mm. and then like the infernal hero and i would say his arc is not knowing who he is and then having to figure out who he is and then once he knows the revelation he has to make a synthesis out of his light and dark side pasts and his reprogrammed identity and i think i don't see revan being like kind of like a troubled kylo ren or ben solo i see him as someone who's going to be conflicted but kind of different than what we saw in the sequel trilogy i think in real life i'd say he kind of represents the person who kind of loses their way but then kind of comes back and has to kind of take bits of everything of who they are and kind of just become the best version of themselves that's what i would say right like maybe he would be kind of a little bit like anakin a little bit like han kind of his own character and maybe even a little bit like obi-wan like young obi-wan like it would be interesting to see what they went with i think you just have to make a bold choice and realize this is an adaptation you're not gonna make revan everything to everyone and maybe just like right. they would have to like be like this is the character we're creating for this story just make it the best story you can because kotor has an amazing story and just I think people will grow to accept this character. I mean, it has been 15 years since the game has come out, so maybe maybe that would help. I don't know if they made a movie, but it would just be interesting mm. to see. So what did you uh, what do you think of Bastila? She is prissy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um and definitely, you know, prickly at first, but uh, for an adaptation, though, I don't know, it's weird because, like, in the game, she's very young. I think you and I spoke about this uh, uh, yeah. much earlier, but she's supposed to be a teenager, I think, or, like, maybe 18? Like, 18 or 19. I'm like, ooh, right. that's gross because I think Revan's supposed to be 38, so. <laughs> yeah, but I would say for an adaptation, if they want to pursue a love interest between Revan and Bastila, then they should be about the same age, so... I think it would make more sense if Basil was aged up because in the game she's very it's weird because like she's a Padawan and she's so young but everyone kind of reveres her as like this prodigy yeah but then she also has like these immature moments so it's like like she's back and forth between like she's like a noble well-respected Jedi Knight but at the same time she's still a teenage Padawan so I think like for an adaptation they have to pick one like, is she a prodigy, but she's still, like, immature, kind of like Anakin? Or is she revered and she is, like, a, an official Jedi Knight? And then Revan would be 
kind of her equal in terms of maturity and skill level. I mean, this game was in development when Attack of the Clones was in development. So I think a lot of like some of the clarity of like what the different um, kinds of Jedi were came from Attack of the Clones because there was more world building. Because you had Padawan, and you kind of knew what a Padawan was, and then Jedi Knight, and then Master. So I think Bastila, according to some external source materials, says she's a knight. But in the game, constantly, they say she's a Padawan. So, like, I guess it's like a Schrodinger's cat situation. You know, it's like, maybe she's a Padawan, maybe she's a knight. I don't know. Yeah. Wasn't she the leader of the strike force against Revan? Yeah. They have her on the front lines, so in my mind, I would say she is a Padawan, but in an adaptation, I would maybe have her be the same age as Obi-Wan's Padawan in The Phantom Menace and be 25, and I would maybe have Revan be 30 or kind of early 30s, and then Karth Mm -hmm. be 35, and then you kind of just have like Kind of people who are of similar ages, but, like, not huge age gaps. I don't think it would really alter that much to kind of move those around a little bit. And I think um, the Mandalorian Wars, like, in the official canon are the Mandalorian Crusades, which I'm like, oh, it kind of sounds more, like, you know, kind of medieval-y. So, like, that change is, is good for me, but... The way I see Bastila is she is not the lead, but I would say she's the main driver of the story. Like, she's the one who, maybe you don't see these actions take place on screen, but her choices really kind of shape the the flow of the story, I would say. So I'd say yeah. she's kind of the heart of the story. I was going to say, so like you said, she's kind of like the prequel obi-wan for the series then yeah i think she's kind of had she's kind of a bit of an anakin trying to pass as an obi-wan like (laughs) that's how that's how i think of her i kind of see her like maybe she's not the tragic hero but maybe like the tragic heroine i would say her arc in a potential adaptation is finding her identity because uh, the Jedi Council is kind of like an overbearing, uh, strict parent and yeah. kind of using her for her battle meditation and yeah. also kind of asking her to conceal the truth to Revan and Karth. And she's kind of like the honor student Padawan, I would say. Like in life, I think she kind of represents like the honor student who kind of goes through a phase when they leave kind of like a strict home. And I would say like she goes through three different like phases through the trilogy, like kind of like conflicted good. And then when she turns to the dark side bad. And then when she kind of comes back to the light, it's kind of more of a real good, like kind of more understanding and kind of reaching self-realization i would say i would say she's a love interest but not just a foil to revan she has stuff to do you know like and she's part of a force bond and that would be interesting to see (laughs) you mean the dyad i guess a dyad whatever (laughs) 
it's been 4,000 years. They can come up with I different know. words. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and then, um, what do you think about Karth? Karth is kind of like the dad, pretty much. Like, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't say like a typical like sitcom dad. Like, he's kind of set in his ways. He's kind of over your shoulder constantly. He's like your moral compass. Um, he's got some iffy stuff in his past, but for the most part, he's kind of just like, you know, like a military brat for the most part. Like he likes to follow the rules. He doesn't really stray too much from, you know, his own moral compass and he kind of chastises you if you do. Yeah. I kind of see Karth as the common hero, kind of the everyman. Yeah. He's not a force user. He's a soldier. And... I kind of like what you say about him kind of being the team dad because he was a dad and he was a husband and then he kind of lost both of those things. Um, yeah, so he kind of carries that over into the crew. Yeah. And I think his arc is kind of being gaslit by Bastila and to an extent by Revan, even though I think Revan does it unknowingly. So I think he's mm -hmm. kind of learning to trust and discover what the truth is. He's kind of like the Lancer, kind of like the, he's not the hero like Luke, but he's kind of the support like Han. It's funny though, I always left Karth on the ship. I always had a team of Jedi with me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what everyone does. It's like, goodbye rest of the crew. Yeah. Now that I have Jolie and Juhani, you will never see yeah. daylight again. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess replaying Knights of the Old Republic now, I just kind of see where Karth is coming from. And I'm like, a lot of shifty stuff is happening and he is being lied to. So I think his paranoia kind of makes sense. It would be interesting to see in an adaptation, in my mind. Yeah, and he also deals with the betrayal of his mentor, too. Yeah, so kind of like a dark... Obi-Wan situation, I guess, or something. Mm -hmm. I guess we could move on to the Ebon Hawk crew. I've never heard of the Ebon Hawk before. <laughs> uh, Mission Veo. Uh, I like Mission. You know, she is a child, um, so she is going to be a little bit, like, defiant. Um, but she's spunky. But at the same time, like, she's competent. So, like, she might go in over her head in a situation, like, trying to track down Zalabar by herself in the sewers or you know, working with the gangs or whatever, but she's competent enough to, like, get herself out of that situation or see that she needs help. Like, she's not going to just keep ramming her head against the wall hoping it works. Like, she's practical enough to be like, I know what I need to do, even if that means, like, asking these strangers for help. And then that's how, you know, she meets the characters anyway. Yeah. And then Mission has a tiny side story on tattooing with her brother, but, like, her brother can be cut. He wasn't, he, you don't even need her brother in the game. No. For me, Mission Veo kind of represents the childlike innocence. I guess kind of mm -hmm. like Anakin in The Phantom Menace, but uh, here it's a little bit aged up. Which is why I think uh, her death in the Dark Side Path is kind of symbolic. It's like you're killing like the childhood Child. innocence, you know? <laughs> yeah. And Mission is probably... Mission is the face of Terrace's destruction, so it stays with you. Um, right. I, what I see her arc as being, it's moving on from family and planetary trouble and learning to find a new home. 
I don't even think Griff needs to appear, but maybe she could just kind of hint that, like, she was abandoned, you know? Yeah. And in a film, I would say you could do Terrace, Dantooine, Kashyyyk, and then maybe on Kashyyyk, after the destruction of Terrace, uh, when things get settled on Kashyyyk, uh, she finds a new home with, with her best friend Zalabart on Kashyyyk. That's what I would say, but... Yeah, Mission Veo is, like, is one of the most popular KOTOR characters, it seems. Like, people like her design mm. and like the character. And her voice actress, uh, this was her first Star Wars role, I believe. Catherine Tabor also went on to voice Padme Amidala in The Clone Wars and some other roles in The Old Republic. And I think she even voiced Leia in a few projects, so... Yeah, she did. Yeah. So what what do you guys think about Zalbar? So if they were going to do casting, I say they should definitely stick with uh, Junus Suatamo, I think his last name is. Yeah. Um, obviously, you have an actor who's trained to portray Wookiee characteristics, but uh, obviously you need to differentiate Zalbar from Chewbacca. So I would say make Zalbar a little bit more aggressive, and maybe he's more docile when Mission's around. Just because, like, Chewbacca's more... Chewbacca kind of does act more like a dog, pretty much. Like, yeah. a reasonable dog. Like, he roars if there's something bad that happens. But you don't really see him rip someone's arms out. They talk about it a lot, but you don't really see it. But, like, Zalbar, I think, needs to, like, be unleashed, pretty much. Like, I think in, in the game they do say he was a Mad Claw. I don't know if they said he really was. Yeah. But they ostracize him because of that. So maybe... In the adaptation, he kind of is. Like, he can control it for the most part, but he still has that, you know, animalistic tendency to just go berserk if he feels he needs to. Because that'll be di- that'll be definitely uh, different than Chewbacca. Yeah. For me, Zalbar is kind of just like a Wookiee who's there for the Star Wars flavor, you know? Like a token character. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, I want token them Wookiee. to kind of play up his kind of redemption and reclamation of Kashik more. Like, he kind of goes through an arc mm. like Simba. Yeah. Just kind of play that up. It doesn't have to be huge, but, like, give him something more to do. Kind of differentiate him from Chewbacca. And right. maybe Mission and Zalabar could come back for the final battle. I don't know if that makes it too endgame-y. If they came back <laughs> they to, to the Starforge battle. <laughs> I don't know. I like the Simba analogy, though, because I feel like if you pitch that to Jon Favreau, he'll make a Zalbar movie. Yeah, I'm like, do it. Zalbar, a Star Wars story, you know? It's like (laughs) a sequel to the beloved Star Wars holiday special. That's what everyone wants. Yeah. So. He would do that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Think about Candorous Ordo. I would say cast Ron Perlman, and then that's it. Very short and simple. His Mandalorian story... Doesn't really pick up until the second game. Yeah. I don't even know. Does he even say he's a Mandalorian in the first game? Oh, he does? Okay. Yeah. He just kind of tells you some cool war stories. And I think he meets an old, like, someone he knew on Tatooine. I think his name is Jaggy. I might be getting that wrong. Okay. But that's kind of all that happens with him. And then, of course, in the dark side path, he'll be like, I get to kill more things. You're a good leader. I'll do it. You know? Um, so I guess what I see Candor Sordo as, he's a good foil to Karth, 
a warrior to his soldier. He mm-hmm. is definitely the biggest link to the Mandalorian Wars, uh, which I think would be necessary and critical in my book. If he were to have an arc, like in an adaptation, I would say combine his arc in Knights of the Old Republic 1 with Knights of the Old Republic 2. Like, he's broken after the war. He kind of became Davik's errand boy. You have to find a compelling reason for him to stay with Revan, I think, because I was kind of thinking about it, like, what reason does he have to hang out with the Ebon Hawk crew after they uh, leave Terrace, you know? Maybe one thing I can think of is maybe he suspects that the person he's traveling with is Darth Revan. Like, maybe he did see him without his mask in the battlefield or something. And he's curious to see where this goes. Like you said, like, he doesn't seem like the type that would stick around with this crew. Like, he has no loyalties to them. He has nothing to offer them, really. Yeah. Other than just being a gun, pretty much. Maybe Revan is just so compelling of a leader to follow that he kind of learns how to be a leader from Revan. And that maybe he starts the gathering of the Mandalorians. And I swear I've only seen Endgame once in theaters. But then I was like, <laughs> what if the Mandalorians, Candorous, like, find some Mandalorian stragglers and then they fight against the Sith and kind of, like, tie it back in with the Mandalorian Wars. But now they're kind of fighting with Revan rather than against him. But then I was like, maybe that's way too much, you know? But then that goes back to Candace wouldn't stay with the crew. He'd have to leave. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I could see Candace doing his own thing and coming back, but it's something to think mm-hmm. about, and I kind of haven't quite cracked it, but maybe someone yeah. out there has a good idea, and I'd love to hear it. So. <laughs> Probably the most interesting and compelling character in Knights of the Old Republic is T3M4. What do you guys think <laughs> of T3? Uh, so in my notes, I said maybe just cast an unknown voice actor so they can make beeps, and that's it. Beep, beep, boop, boop. <laughs> like, pretty much. You're, you're hired. <laughs> yeah. It could be Ben Burt. Or I think Ben Burt yeah. might have moved on from Star Wars. Maybe Matthew Wood. It would be hilarious because oh, yeah. he did he the voice of Grievous, so... It could be like, yeah. we want you to do the opposite of that. Just be cute, yeah. you know? It's like, okay. <laughs> so, T3M4, in Knights of the Old Republic, he's really kind of just there to add more Star Wars flavor. It's like, he's R2-D2, but 4,000 years ago, you know? Um, right. In a movie, I would have him be Bastila or Karth's droid. Preference maybe to Bastila, maybe? Um, because it kind of would complement HK being Revan's. Um, right. I would say they're like T three is probably the most obvious visual of the Kotor era. It just has yeah. a good design. It's like similar but different. T three is more interesting in Knights of the Old Republic too, but I don't think he needs to have an arc or anything. Just kind of be a cool background character so Disney can sell those Funko Pops, you yeah. know? I will buy one. Yeah. <laughs> I would probably buy one. Like, T3 is adorable. What do you think of uh, Juhani, Nick? I always got the sense that Juhani's character, she's an allegory for being gay. 
I know it's kind of hinted because you meet another side character. Her name is Belala or Bayala, I think. Yeah. And she approaches you and she's like, my friend is missing and I'm super worried about her. And we're like, okay, you're really worried about your associate, but we can kind of read between the lines like they're most likely lovers. So then when you go to find Jahani, she's this young girl who she is kind of overwhelmed because she gave into what her religion says is a sin. She gave into anger and violence pretty much. Because she was in a training accident with her master and she struck her master. She thought she killed her, but she didn't. Um, but then it's weird because, like, the council says, you know, she, there's something wrong with her. And if you need to kill her, you can. <laughs> it's like, uh, maybe we can counsel her first and, you know, see what's going on instead of just, like, assuming she's evil. And, you know, as a gay person myself, it, I can relate to, growing up in like a strict order of a family or a religion and, you know, feeling overwhelmed. And like, let's say you do something that is considered sinful or whatever, even if it's something small, but like your leaders or your family members will just be on top of you and you'll feel overwhelmed. And for some people, they actually go down like a real dark side path, whether that's substance abuse, you know, hurting themselves, sometimes suicide. So I think Johanny is very, like, underappreciated. And I hope in a live adaptation that they really, like, showcase her as being, like, uh, you know, a diverse voice for, like, the LGBT community. I think, like, she serves as kind of a good window into the Jedi Order as to most people who are familiar with Star Wars. Like, I know in the Clone Wars and sometimes the prequels, they say, like, oh, the Jedi lost their way or whatever. But I think in this, this is a pure example of, like, they are so caught up in their ideology that they're ignoring that a young person in their community is in trouble and they're not being as forgiving. They're kind of just accusing her. And in a way, they're the ones that are causing her to embrace the dark side pretty much because they're not really helping her. Yeah, something... It's hard because I love the planet Dantooine, but then I was like, wow, like I'm pretty sure like every Jedi like, prominent Jedi we meet there goes to the dark side. And I was like, wow, that, like, they're doing something wrong there. Oh, Dantooine is weird because it's, like, there's, like, this definite caste system where it's, like, if you're not a master, you're nothing pretty much. Because, like, they treat Bastila like a tool. Like, they just send her around doing whatever. With Johanny, they were ready to discard her. Pretty much any Padawans you meet, they're kind of ignored. My, one of my favorite sub-characters is Nemo. He's, like, the 80-year-old Jedi Knight character. Yeah. But, like, they just send him into a dark side cave. They know what's out there. They know something bad is there. Why would you send your most senile, frail Jedi <laughs> to go out and look? And then, obviously, you and Basila find out that he's dead on the floor. You find and no Nemo. one comments on it. Yeah, you find Nemo. <laughs> <laughs> he's dead, though. Yeah. But... <laughs> That's different. But, like... Yeah, but, like, the Dantooine Jedi Order, that council, I don't know. Like, they need an HR department to look into them. Yeah, I like, I mean, it's very shady to, like, reprogram someone's identity. And I wonder if, like, too, yeah. the Coruscant Jedi Council would have approved that. But Dantooine is like, we're not going to ask for permission. We're just going to do this. Yeah. So. I don't know. Atris is on the Coruscant Council, so she probably would have been like, do what you have to. Yeah. 
So, like, for me, I see Juhani as she's a Jedi who isn't, like, Bastila or Jolie. So she's kind of just a, a bit different, you know? Um, yeah. And she's the first prominent Jedi we see fall to the dark side and come back to the light. So, I mean, it could, like, foreshadow Bastila and Revan, too. Revan saved her, I believe, in the Mandalorian Wars from slavery on Terrace during the Mandalorian Wars. And for a second time on Dantooine. So I would highlight her role in a different way than the game has. Uh, just so the Ebon Hawk isn't overcrowded and she isn't just kind of like lost in the background. I would have her be kind of a prominent uh, character during the Dantooine arc. Like during the first movie or season or whatever. But then mm -hmm. have her join the party after the bombardment on Dantooine at the end of the second game uh, just so she can kind of tell uh, Revan like what happened and like only a few escaped I was able to make it out but I want to help you yeah. see this mission through you know because I heard you lost Bastila you know and you need all the help right. you can get so she can kind of like help out with the exposition and I just feel like that would give her more of a prominent role rather than just having her yeah. in one two and three just kind of like, well, I mean, she would be in one, two, and three, but like, just so she has more of an impact and not get lost in the background, like I said. I think that would work because, like, like you said, like this list is about almost ten different characters yeah. as like your companions. Yeah. And it's like maybe they could all fit on the ship, but there's no way you can give attention to all of them. So it's like you meet, you know, Jahani and Dantooine, and she is like the bigger plot on Dantooine. Uh, yeah. But then once you leave, like, you may not see her until maybe, like, the end game situation you mentioned. Like, Candace isn't with you for the whole thing. Yeah. Maybe he did feel inspired, and he goes off to do his recruitment. Maybe Jahani feels inspired, and she, like, doubles down on being a better Jedi Knight. Maybe she yeah. even leaves the Order, but she'll still come back in the end game to help you because you actually saved her. Yeah. Like... And she's not taking up space on the Ebonhawk. Yeah. <laughs> So I kind of see her as like a struggling, her arc would be like, she's a struggling Jedi, and then at the end mm -hmm. uh, would be a, a full-fledged Jedi Knight. And then HK47, what do you what do you think about HK? I like him. Like, you know, he's comic relief for the most part. Um, I would say definitely keep the original voice actor, Christopher Tabori. Yeah. I don't know, because like, watching The Mandalorian, and when you watch like IG-11, he has a little bit of a HK tendency, and then also, what's his name? K2 in Rogue One. K2SO, yeah. Yeah, like, he's also similar, like, sassy, very, like, blunt force. But I think what HK has is he's more sadistic. So that would be interesting to see from a droid. Because most of the droids, like, they can be passionate, they can be quirky, like C-3PO or L3, but, like, HK is kind of like a Terminator but at the same time, he acts like a protocol droid. I mean, he's definitely comic relief. Like, that's his main purpose. But I don't really see him having much of a redemption role. Because he's kind of one of those characters that's like, he knows what he is, and he likes it. And he doesn't want to change. No. In Knights of the Old Republic 2, I think you can get a pacifist program installed upon him. And it's really funny. Uh, but we'll get to that when we cover Knights of the Old Republic 2. So with HK-47, 
I would say K2SO stole a bit of his thunder, perhaps. And then probably yeah. IG-11 too. So people would be like, oh, they're just trying to do the same old thing. And it's like, HK-47 is the original, not the remix. Yeah. With a lot of things uh, in KOTOR. Because I think HK, he's also kind of a visual representation of the technology of the KOTOR era. Kind of like yeah, a... clunky. Yeah. And he's also like a dark mimesis of C-3PO. Like a protocol droid yeah. that will kill you, you know? But it's funny because the comic said that too. They have a dark C-3PO. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty cool, but it's like, it's so weird. Star Wars has all these like different types of droids and they're all great. Yeah. But it's like, it's it's a juggling act to make them, you know, stand out from one, one another. Yeah. And what is cool about HK is like, obviously his sense of humor. I'd be fine if they kept the same voice actor if he still wanted to do it and kind of had the same yeah. voice still. HK is a connection and an external confirmation of Revan's past post-reveal because he regains his memories and he's like, you're my original master, you know? So. Right. And it, I think he shows that anyone's memory and personality can be wiped and reprogrammed. That can happen to humans or droids, but maybe it's, you know, not good for humans and who knows if it's good for droids. So, Jolie Bindo. I like Jolie. You know, he's, he kind of does fall into like that token stereotype of he's the wise person of color who is kind of like that sage wizard who's a supporting character but doesn't do much beyond that other than be funny but is meant to just push the main character along so i would hope that in a live adaptation that they do a little bit more with him maybe show more of like he's more of a gray jedi maybe uh offering more insight to be like you don't have to be Darth Revan, you don't have to be a Jedi. You can just be a person. So maybe make him more like a Qui-Gon type character. Yeah. And not just a token character. Well, I think he has a small connection with Zalbar because I think he's friends with Zalbar's father. Yeah. Because they seem to know each other because his father was exiled. But, you know, they keep their distance or whatever. But, yeah, I think it would be better if they found something to connectually more to the story to another character maybe Zalbar because he is on Kashyyyk yeah but maybe he was on the council and maybe he was against doing the Revan brainwashing thing yeah I guess for me I kind of see Jolie Bindo as like the Qui-Gon Jinn or the wizened Ben Kenobi to Revan he is mm -hmm. the mentor but not quite in the way like we've seen in Star Wars before. I think he would join Revan and his crew because I think he's going to kind of, he's kind of like the Qui-Gon Jinn and Qui-Gon is able to see that this random Padme handmaiden is actually the queen. So I think he would yeah. kind of deduce like, this is Revan. I don't know yeah. what's going on, but I need to make sure, like, right. whatever's happening, so maybe, he doesn't become Dark Lord of the Sith again. Right. So maybe Julie has the double standard of, I'm going to go out of my way to guide this young person, because he kind of has a clean slate. But if it backfires, I'm going to kill him. 
because I can't risk another Sith Lord. So that would make Julie a little bit more interesting as he would kind of be like the Cassian Andor kind of. Yeah. Of like, he doesn't want to kill Jin's father. He has to. If, you know, yeah. if he can't find another way. So I think that would be interesting. And then maybe like they find out like Jolie pulls like a Luke Skywalker in the hut over Ben Solo moment or something. I don't know. Yeah. It could it could be more interesting. But I, yeah. I definitely think like his talks with Revan help him who find out like who he is in the midst of like a galaxy full of Jedi, Sith, and the quest for the Starforge and the Revelation. I think he's a more t- balanced type of Jedi. I think in the new canon, like, Grey Jedi don't really exist. I kind of would see Jolie as a bit of, like, an Ahsoka. Kind of, like, not a Jedi, but, like, on the side of good, yeah. I would say. That's what I would That's what I would kind of see Ahsoka Qui-Gon as. Like, for me, it's simpler just to say Grey Jedi. But when I say that, I mean just, like, they have more of the values of what the Jedi believe in, but they're not held back by the dogma. Yeah. So, like, if they see someone in trouble, they'll help them. They're not going to care if they're a Separatist or yeah. whatever, or even a dark side user. Yeah. Right. Like, they're their own people. And I think Jolie would be a unique mentor to encourage that, encourage individuality instead of just being like, oh, you must learn the ways of the Force. Because, like, obviously, Revan doesn't need to really learn that. He yeah. has it within him. He just has to, like, unlock it. Yeah, I think... But, like, what to do with that power... The Masters don't really say that in the movies. They're just, like, we gotta level you up pretty much. But they don't really tell you what you should be doing with it. Yeah. I think Jolie is the face of... Jolie kind of represents that you can leave the Jedi Order or disagree with them without falling to the dark side. And he's also a connection to the original Knights of the Old Republic comics that featured Exar Kun, Ulit Quell Drama, and Nomi Sunrider. So yeah, he doesn't have a huge arc. He's already gone in his journey, but I think he's helping Revan in his quest. And mm-hmm. I think they can definitely find ways to kind of like spice it up, make it more interesting. But um, yeah, I think Jolie has a lot of meme potential, honestly, because... I mean, like, everyone loves Kiyadi Mundi's, like, what about the droid attack on the Wookiees? But Jolie Bindo, yeah. he did everything, quote-unquote, for the Wookiees. So I think yeah, he should be in an adaptation I, uh... just for that. <laughs> I forgot, that's actually one of his battle cries, isn't it? For the Wookiees! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's pretty funny. Let's just take a quick break, and we'll be back with the rest of the episode. Darth Bandon. I don't know. He's kind of a throwaway character. Like, he's not even a real Sith apprentice in my eyes. He's just, like, a pawn. Yeah. But, I mean, like, I was thinking, like, to, like, who would I cast for him? And I'm thinking, like, maybe just some big guy from the WWE. Like, maybe The Rock's cousin. He'd be cool visually. Doesn't really get much dialogue. And then gets, like, a a nice death. And then that's it. I think he's a stand-in villain until you confront the actual villain of the story. He's right. kind of like a mini-boss. 
so he's kind of a mirror to Bastila than anything. I mean, there is a year after Malik betrayed Revan, so I think it does make sense that he would get like a replacement goldfish apprentice, you know? <laughs> but like, it doesn't have to be a huge thing. Like, that, that's what I would say. Darth Malik. I mean, like, he only really has two notable scenes. When he bombards uh, Taris, and then uh, when he tortures Bastila. And, you know, seduces her to the dark side. Which he doesn't really do that well of a job, because I feel like he could play into that more. Because even we, just playing the game, we know Bastila is pretty much treated as a tool by the council. The Order doesn't really seem to care about her outside of her abilities. Otherwise, they would just disrespect her as, like, a low-level Padawan. And, you know, she does have kind of a selfish image of herself. Like, she is this prodigal knight, which a Jedi shouldn't have. But at the same time, the Council's encouraging that. So yeah. it's kind of like... I feel like the Council pushed her more to the dark side than Malak ever did. Honestly, but, yeah. I mean, but Malak can use that to his advantage. He didn't in the game, but like in a live action adaptation, he could. So I guess he has potential to be more interesting. Yeah. But he is kind of just like the stand in Darth Vader, pretty much. Darth Malik, he needs to feel like the big bad villain of KOTOR. Because mm -hmm. I think like Disney would just be like, can we have Darth Nihilus in this one? Because we want to sell that Funko Pop, you know? <laughs> I don't understand that. I see him, like, he's getting really popular yeah. right now with, like, Black Series figure, Funko Pop. And I'm like, yeah, it's a cool, you know, design with the mask and stuff. But I'm like, There's not much to really they... identify with. It's kind of just a cool right. design. He kind of just comes off as, like, Thanos, pretty much. Like, he just wants to kill for his own little reason that isn't quite clear. And... He doesn't really have dialogue because he makes like that static noise. Yeah. And I'm like, I just don't really see the appeal with Nihilus. Yeah. I would definitely, like in a Knights of the Old Republic adaptation, want more of a presence from him. And like, I would say have him speak words, you know, or have subtitles mm -hmm. or something, you know. Yeah. But... Uh, for Darth Malik, I'd say he's the big bad villain of KOTOR. Kind of a tragic villain, but I think, like, not so much tragic as just, like, the big bad. He's kind of more of a hammer where perhaps Darth Revan was a scalpel. Uh, mm -hmm. Revan was his old best friend. And then it's, like, sometimes, like, when you and a friend, like, have a falling out, you know, like, I think that's kind of what is... Kind of being represented in in Kotor, and Malik was always like the number two, who is never yeah. content, and he wants to be number one. And by trying to become number one, he loses everything. That's just how I I see it. But no matter yeah. like, even though he is a tragic figure. He went on the dark path willingly, and even when you try to give him redemption, he rejects it. But, I mean, we've kind of talked about how to make Malik more interesting, and I think there's definitely ways that it could be done. 
one thing they don't really utilize is the academy and Korriban. That's kind of like its own side thing. But maybe like have Malik there. Yeah. And like what exactly is his role? Because like you know the role of the school. They have a headmaster, they have teachers, and they have students. But yeah. like if Malik was to go there, like are there going to be people that try to usurp him? And he has to make an example. Does he yeah. give like a General Hux type speech to rally them? Like, you know, like there's a lot they can use him for. I just feel like they didn't in the game. Nick, would you want any KOTOR 2 characters to have cameos in like anything related to the first Knights of the Old Republic? I thought about this and I would say top of the list would be Kreia. And then second would be Atris. For Kreia, I don't know if she left the Jedi Order at that point, like during the events of the first game. I don't think she was yeah. exiled yet, right? Yeah. So I think she's still within the Order. Maybe like you can see her like when he's exploring or whatever, and like you just see like this random old lady pass by and she gives like a weird look to the camera. And then like that's all you see of her. But then like you know, she'll be revealed in season two or, you know, the next installment. I would definitely want to have the Jedi Exile perhaps mentioned. Maybe the Jedi Council yeah. on Dantooine could mention her. And uh, perhaps Revan could remember her vaguely. And maybe Malak would be mention her too. Because it would make mm -hmm. sense because they knew her. Uh, probably One thing, not have her appeared but just mentioned that would be enough for me yeah i think one thing i thought might be interesting though is like if they made the exile revan's apprentice you know jedi apprentice or maybe even no no well jedi apprentice because um she sticks with him during the war but yeah i don't know what happens to her is she just exile when they find out that um, revan has become a sith so she is the only member of Revan's posse that doesn't turn to the dark side after the war. And then she goes back right, to the council exile she's exiled. I think for Kreia, if she were just in for a moment, that wouldn't be enough for me. I think, like, Kreia just would have to have her own movie. And, like, in Knights of the Old Republic 2, she can be, like, kind of, like, one of the definitive characters. Because I think a cameo would be selling mm -hmm. her short, in my mind. Maybe make her the Thanos at the end of the film. Like, maybe she's meditating, and she's kind of like, I'll do it myself type thing. Like, find Revan, or, uh, you know, whatever her mission is in the adaptation. Destroy the forest, bring balance to the forest. Yeah. And kind of end it there as, like, who was that woman? And then later on you'll find out she's Revan's master. And maybe the next storyline, because, you know, they can make up whatever they want. They don't even have to continue with the true sequel of KOTOR 2. They can just say, now it's just going to be the Kreia and Revan show. <laughs> yeah, because I remember Lin-Manuel Miranda talking about how he when he was writing Hamilton... He mm -hmm. was considering having Benjamin Franklin appear, but then he realized that if Benjamin Franklin appeared, it would become the Benjamin Franklin musical because he's just so wild and interesting and, like, kind of does everything. Right. So, like, maybe it's like Kreia would just kind of take over 
So maybe I just um, would want to just have her be in Knights of the Old Republic too, and kind of be like just that amazing role, you know? Yeah, but because like you can feel her. She absence. definitely steals the show. Yeah, she definitely steals the show in the game because without her, like she carries that entire game. Yeah, with just like her dialogue alone. Yeah. So obviously they need to get a compelling actress to do the same, which you know there's a number of actresses that could play her. And I would love that type of role to basically just like, I'm, I'm not even quite sure, like, would she be the antagonist right away? Or would she just be more the companion? But even then, like, her dialogue kinda would like, just be so She's epic. definitely in control. She's kind of different things to the protagonist. Like, she can be helpful, she can be a mentor, and then antagonist. It's like, I think she's kind of like the changeling. Like, mm-hmm. she changes so much, you know? One character I do think it would make sense to see in a Knights of the Old Republic adaptation is Atris. Um, I think she should be on the Jedi Council on Dantooine because she kind of seems like morally questionable like they are. It fits. And without her, like the Dantooine Jedi Council is just all these dudes. And I'm like, we could mix in, you know, (laughs) at least one woman. Um, and she fits right in with like their ideology of like if you're not a jedi then you're against us pretty much yeah and she's super disrespectful to everyone including her own handmaidens yeah and she has excellent robes that i think would make for an excellent you know black series figure so uh, i think it'd be make sense to see her like some people are like what if atris was bastila's master and i'm like that would be a bit too much i i don't think that would happen does does Bastila even have an official master um so in some deleted audio files um because they in the the early dantooine levels i think they kind of made it so Bastila would stick with the council a bit originally that wasn't Mm -hmm. always how it was going to be um so there is some deleted audio where nemo sees Bastila and he says oh does your master still like pour water on you when you are misbehaving and i'm like what kind of school is this like <laughs> and i'm just like wow but so we don't know who her master is but it would be fascinating to find out one day yeah. so it would be pretty cool if it was atris because then there's that dynamic of atris and Kreia hate each other yeah and their Padawans are now lovers. It's kind of like a Romeo Juliet type situation. Yeah, it it would be Which hilarious. Disney would, Disney would eat that up. They would love that. Yeah, I think some fan adaptations, kind of made within the engine of Kotor. I think they had like maybe Mira appear in one of the bars, like in in one of the cantinas, uh, and like maybe that would be. A I've bit seen too that, much, but um, uh, Atten as well. I think too. Yeah. I need to find a way to like Atten more because I think like everyone is on board for Atten and the exile being the main romance. And I'm just like, ugh, uh, no. See, like, He's... again, with the exile and like Ray, they don't need a romance. That's what I would think, too. Bastila, I feel like she does need someone to anchor her in a bit because she's just like full of herself. Yeah. Whereas characters like Rey and the Exile, they're the opposite. Or at least, like, maybe Exile could have, like, a slow burn, which is what I think was intended. 
with obsidian, but I'm like, why does it have to be the gross Han <laughs> coffee cat? And I'm like, because uh, even like Michael, the disciple, no. I'm like, when you listen to him, I'm like, oh, he, he seems interesting or can Beodor be an option, please? You know, like. I think Beodor definitely is a better option. He's mature. He's cool. They went to war together. Immature. Yeah. Like they have a connection. Yeah. But Atten is just like a sleaze. Michael. I mean, he has some interesting philosophies, like about the Jedi. Mm -hmm. I think he kind of sees their flaws, even though he like sees himself as like, aspiring to be a jedi but i would maybe just kind of scrap the whole like he was going he wanted to be the exile's padawan and just maybe age him up you know but who knows we'll we'll figure that out uh covering knights of the old republic too um but i just wanted to add before we before we go some books that kind of helped me kind of understand characters more and all that going into planning a story uh, is The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell, uh, Bruce Mayo's Heroes, and The Writer's Journey uh, by Christopher Vogler. And The Writer's Journey actually just had its 25th anniversary. Are there any books or anything that helped you kind of examine characters more? Mm, Not so much, because like for me, when I'm examining characters i kind of do it on more of a personal level of like how do i connect with them do i know someone that's like them uh so not necessarily more like an analytical examination of like a type but more of a you know emotional connection that's kind of like how i examine characters yeah because i think that's um kind of emblematic of star wars like it can be it works at a simple level but mm. it can also work uh, at a deeper symbolic level. So, right, yeah. Uh, where can our listeners find you, Nick? <laughs> I am on Instagram at ironic.designs. Um, I also have a Redbubble shop that's live. Um, also, that's just ir- uh, ironic designs. And I have a link to that in my Instagram bio. And I'm also collaborating with a few other content creators. I'm going to be working with... Um, Jeff Strake Eek on some of his upcoming fan films. Uh, and I'm also doing some promo work for Kyle Tarn's YouTube channel. Oh, awesome. Yeah, we've we've had Jet Streak Inc. on and it was it was a fun episode too. Uh so Yeah. Yeah. Things are coming on again, like for like a real fun mammoth of an episode. Well, thank you again for having me. Yeah, of course. And then you can find us on Instagram at Ebonhawk Podcast and the Ebonhawk can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, as well as everywhere else that Anchor Podcasts are distributed. Subscriptions, reviews, and shares help us out immensely. Then our email is ebonhawkpodcast at gmail.com. Email us your comments and questions and business inquiries there. And then coding can be found on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash code and bond. And he's also on Instagram at Codenbon. And our intro and outro themes were composed by Alistair Scheuermann at alistairsounds.wixsite.com forward slash alistairsounds. And our transition music was composed by Christian Walker at christianwalkermusic.com. 
This has been the Evan Hawk Podcast. May the Force be with you. We will be back soon. Bye for now. Thank you.